But I think it's also a way for them to control the narrative. Um, having them decide what is ESG versus like an individual company. So I remember, I think it was the S&P ESG index. This was about a year ago that Tesla wasn't on it, but Exxon, I believe, was like number one or number two. Sure. And it was all based on the fact that I guess there were some people that say that um, there were there was some discrimination going on at one of the factories. Okay, I mean, I'm not saying they got they got dinged on the social component. Yeah, I think that's what it was. Is, but that, if you, is that social? I guess I don't. I, I'm not really sure exactly. But it, but if you look at like okay, let's look at. And I'm not. I'm not coming. I'm not being anti-oil. I'm not criticizing Exxon for this. But you can't tell me that from an from an environmental and social standpoint that ESG has or Exxon is is has embraced ESG more than more than Tesla. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Angel Research Podcast. We are here, as usual, today to discuss the market's hottest stock stories and investment opportunities. Today, we have Mr. Jeff Siegel joining us. Jeff is the uh, the founder and investment director of the weekly investment advisory service, Greenship Stocks. And he's here to uh, today to talk to us about uh, a wide array of investing topics. So we're going to talk about ESG investing, what that is. We're going to talk about a unique income opportunity in solar energy. We're going to talk about electric vehicles, uh, the electrification of the world, and we might touch on the uh, recent uh, train wreck in Ohio and some of the environmental impacts going on there. Per our usual disclaimer, nothing that we say here today is personal financial advice. We can give you tools and insights, but we cannot make trading decisions for you. Also, please like, comment, and subscribe. The engagement really helps us out. And uh, join the recently launched Discord. There should be a couple of links, one in the description and one in a pinned comment below. I think we're probably limiting that to 50 slots. We usually have, you know, upwards of 1,000 people watching these videos. So if you want to uh, lock in your your spot, it's completely free. Just click the link. And uh, basically, the Discord is a place where we uh, talk with our experts and uh, viewers like you and everyone kind of you know, shares their investing uh, investing opinions and what they're seeing in the market. We share daily news. So join the conversation. I highly recommend uh, you take advantage uh, of that opportunity while these slots are open. With all that out of the way, Jeff. <laughs> that was a lot to get out of the way. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's it's the most nerve wracking part of the of the podcast is the introduction <laughs> for me at least. Well, uh, you but, should say it like they have one like. Uh, there's a there's a there's a gambling site now that it's on um, the Michael Rappaport podcast, mm-hmm. and after after they talk about the gambling site, they have to do the disclaimer, but it's just like and the whole thing is like if you have a gambling problem, you can call these different numbers, but there's nobody catching what they're saying no, at pro- all. Are they actually reading it live or they're it's a pre recorded? It's got to be pre recorded. Yeah, and they probably speed it up a little bit. Okay, uh, Jeff. Um, I was hoping you could kind of, you know, for anyone who's not familiar with who you are and what Greenship Stocks is, can you just give us a quick rundown of, of those two things? Yeah, so I started Greenship Stocks in 2006 with the idea of focusing on what's called socially responsible investing. Um, I like the idea of um, what we say doing well by doing good. I want to invest in companies and industries that I believe are making the world a better place. Um, I should point out, though, that this whole concept of Ethical investing, socially responsible investing, it's all relative. Everyone has their own idea of what is considered socially responsible or ethical. So I don't presume to you know, push my beliefs on other people. It's just you know, my own 
personal belief system is integrated into my sure you should uh, turn your drink over here you're drinking kombucha that's like <laughs> the most like i'm very woke today i have possible. my kombucha <laughs> uh yeah so yeah maybe i guess you could uh could you help us um actually no first tell us what what green chip stocks is and and what the, what that uh, newsletter is all about well that was the thing yeah. like that's yeah. I, I i was able to find the things that i'm interested in from um the the standpoint of the companies and and uh and industries that I believe are making the world a better place. So I was very active in clean energy, uh, cannabis, biotech, um, f- food alternatives, food tech, just anything that I really f- feel like offers some envi- some benefit to to the world. Sure, but still trying to make money in the well, process. Of course, correct? It's not, like that's yeah. I'm not a charity, you yeah. know, and I think that's a big thing. Like I get a lot of conferences where, you know, I'm there to talk about opportunities, say in clean energy, um, and then someone will inevitably bring up a company and I will say, well, this is a horrible investment for this reason, this reason. Um, and it's, it's a lot of pushback. Well, how, why are you being so dismissive of this company? They're doing great things. I'm like, but it's not going to work if they can't make a profit, then they're not going to be here. So what's the point? Sure. You know, you're either going to be here for the long term or not. I always thought Tesla was a great example of that. So when Tesla came out, like Tesla launched the electric vehicle revolution. It would not exist without Tesla, without Elon Musk. That's a fact. So, um, you know, so, so should we should we criticize Elon Musk for profiting off of this company that is essentially like, you know, decreasing the amount of CO2 in the air and, and, and decreasing the amount of uh, chances of, of eventually having oil spills and, and just all the th- all the bad things and environmental burdens that come with our reliance on oil, not to mention the national security um, burdens that come with that as well. It's been interesting watching the flip of kind of like what people like the people that loved Elon Musk seem uh, to be the people that hate Elon Musk now and the people that hated Elon Musk and I'm kind of guilty of this my, myself are uh, the people that kind of like like Elon Musk more now but I think you know once people start making money people just a lot of there are there are there's a certain subset of people out there that automatically just kind of give you the evil label because you're, right. because you're rich and because you're wealthy. But. Well, they're just like, well, why doesn't he donate more money to this? They're like, well, why don't you donate more money to that? Yeah. You know, the per- percentage-wise, go ahead and d- donate 50% of your money, just yeah. like you're expecting him to do. Oh, you can't do that? Oh, okay. So for you, you're trying to ch- you're trying to tick both the boxes of, uh, you know, what you deem to be socially and envir- environmentally responsible and mm-hmm. also something that's a, a good profit opportunity. Well, I, and I would add to that that, like, I'm a, I'm a big believer – in the idea of capitalism being a catalyst for positive change, yeah, um, and I, 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 you know, capitalism is is attacked a lot now. Um, but in terms of again making the world a better place, in terms of uh, you know cleaning the environment, you know, ma- making the air cleaner and the water cleaner and the soil healthy, and uh, you know, giving people the opportunity to to build a life and to build wealth, like you don't get that with anything else but capitalism. So the idea of criticizing capitalism or saying capitalism is is the reason that we have environmental problems or social problems is a complete bullshit. It's the exact opposite of that. Okay, um, should I step could, down off my soapbox now? Well, yeah. Well, I think there's going to be you, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of people who disagree with you and oh, think sure. that capitalism is is a catalyst for for a lot of you know bad things. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, I think that. You know, most reasonable people think that you need to strike a good balance between, com- you know, a competitive private landscape and then like regulations that don't, you know, you know, prevent companies from doing, you know, truly terrible things. Right, right. And holding holding people responsible for, uh, you know, 
holding these companies responsible for when these things happen. So, I mean, I guess maybe that's a good transition for the, the Ohio uh, train right. wreck that's going on right now. Well, um, if I can point out what you said, though, is like making these companies responsible for things they did. And my attitude is I don't want to make these companies responsible for what they did. I want to make it so what they did doesn't happen in, in the first place. Yeah. And I think oftentimes that is a result of government. So the government puts these regulations in place, but they're skirted all the time. If you have the money and influence, you don't have to pay, pay attention to regulations. Now, I don't know what happened specifically what happened to that train derailment, and I'm sure we'll find out eventually. Um, but I suspect that, uh, was it Southern, um, Norfolk Southern? I honestly, I don't know anything That's the name of the company, right? Norfolk Southern or Southern? This is how clued in I am to this right now. Um, I, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that there's some kind of safety protocols that were not met. And this happens all the time. I mean, I've seen pictures of the trains. They just look rusted. Like, they just look so old, and the infrastructure is obviously crumbling. So. Right. Right. And even like the cars themselves, I know that they have like cer- certain measurements that are taken to uh, insulate the, these these train cars from things like this happening. So it doesn't make sense to me that you would put that stuff on a rail car knowing that if it does derail, there's going to be a problem. So somebody missed something. And, you know, again, it's you can have all the regulation you want, but if you're not following it because you don't have to, well, then what's the what's the point? Yeah. Um so ESG, what does this stand for? So environmental social governance. Um, ESG, I, I believe, is is a sound idea. Okay, and when it started out, ESG was simply a voluntary thing. You know, companies would say we want to incorporate ESG standards into our daily operations, um, which for for me, I think is 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 honorable. Is an honorable thing to do. Um, the problem is, at some point, Wall Street decided that. Hey, people want to invest in like cleaner energy or things that are, you know, um, maybe make things more equitable, equitable for everyone. Um, so they essentially hijacked it, um, figured out a way to monetize it, and um, really turned turned something that was that really had <laughs> it was it, it was so benign, you know, and it really really it was really just like a, again a voluntary thing. And then all of a sudden you say, well, did you read these, reach these ESG standards that we put in place? Well, who are you? A bunch of dudes in Wall Street. Like, I'm sure you really care about the environment. Yeah. You know? And are they just using, are they, what is the benefit of meeting those standards? Do you get to be in a specific fund? Are there certain, like, are there tax benefits or something? Is it mainly the PR bump that you get? I think it's the PR. It's also people that do, I mean, there's a growing interest in, in, um, investors that want to invest in, in things that are better for the environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, so it's a way to kind of capitalize on that. But I think it's also a way for them to control the narrative. Um, the, having them decide what is ESG versus like an individual company. So I remember, I think it was the S&P um, ESG index. This was about a year ago that Tesla wasn't on it. But Exxon, I believe, was like number one or number two. Sure. And it was all based on the fact that I guess there were some people that say that um, – there were there was some discrimination going on at one of the factories. Okay, I mean I'm not saying so they that, got they got dinged on the social component. Or of, the yeah, I think that's or, what it was. Is but that, you, is that social? I guess I don't. I, I'm not really sure exactly, but it, but if you look at like okay, let's look at and I'm not I'm not coming I'm not being anti oil. I'm not criticizing Exxon for this, but you can't tell me that from an from an environmental and social standpoint that ESG has or Exxon is is has embraced ESG more than more than Tesla. The weird thing about ESG too is like, and this is when I'm talking about green chip stocks, like 
a lot of this stuff is relative. You know, like what do you believe is, is good for the environment or bad for the environment um, if you're looking at environmental issues? Um, I, I think that without using the word ESG, uh, I think some of the things that are often included in ESG do need to be considered. So I'm going to bring up climate change, for instance. Um, you know, when people attack ESG, oftentimes they'll talk about climate change and it's like, well, you know, a company should not have to, you know, abide by certain rules that talk about climate change. It has nothing to do with their operations, that kind of thing. But that's not true. In most industries will be affected by climate change through extreme weather events that are a result of climate change, whether you believe that or not. I, I don't care. <laughs> my, my point is extreme weather events are happening. And if, if the presumption is that this is a result of climate change, we're not saying, uh, you know, you have to stop driving a car or fly, or, or fly in an airplane. But what they're saying is there are risks that come with that. So if you're an insurance company, if you don't take into consideration climate change and extreme weather events as a result of climate change, um, then uh, you are doing a disservice to your investors. And it is... Um, irresponsible, I believe, for a lot of these companies to disregard these things, whether it's insurance, home building, uh, agriculture in a big way. Um, and it's unfortunate because it be, it, when ESG got into like the realm of Wall Street, it, that really politicized it. Um, and it makes it difficult now. So if I'm running, let's say if I'm running an insurance company, and I say, of course I have to take this into consideration, I'm not going to insure a house that's right on the ocean because I know in 10 years that that ocean, that beach isn't even going to be there anymore or 20 years or whatever it may be. I think it's irresponsible to disregard those things. So I don't think it makes sense to politicize it or look at it as like an environmental thing. It's just a responsible thing. You have a, you have a, a, a responsibility to your shareholders. And if you disregard uh, these, this increase in extreme weather events, then, then you are essentially, uh, acting irresponsibly, just as if you don't reveal, you know, an accounting error or something sure. like that. That's kind of how I'm seeing it. I really wish that ESG would have just kind of stayed underground, you know, which would have stayed as like, hey, there's this thing called ESG. Do you want to integrate it into your operations? Yes or no? doesn't matter if you want to or not. But now, I mean, it's going to be the same thing this year. It's going to be politicized. Everyone's going to talk about ESG and wokeness and how it's going to wreck the country. And it's just like, Dude, just invest in what you want to invest. If you don't want to abide by ESG standards, however you see them, that's fine. Do, do you feel like maybe the whole ESG thing is like giving you a bad rep at all or like stealing your thunder at all? Because you've been, I mean, when did you launch Green Ship Stocks? 2006. I mean, yeah, and that's, yeah. I mean, the whole premise of Green Ship Stocks was kind of in the spirit of, of ESG. Right. Um, and now it's being abused by Wall Street and right. it's kind of being diluted. And I've had to defend it for sure. Like I've definitely come out and said, again, I've said it here already, fundamentally the concept of ESG is sound, um, but it has to be voluntary. Yeah. You know, it has to be voluntary. Yeah. I think that the, I mean, the big thing is like who is deciding what is environmentally, socially, you know, responsible. Right. And what are their motives? And I think that that's kind of like people need to be aware of those things and not, you know, take those, uh, take anyone that says that a company is ESG with, you know, with a grain of salt and do, right. do their own research and do due diligence. And like you're saying, decide for themselves whether or not they agree if this company is being ethically responsible or not. This is actually not, it's not necessarily new either. So when I first started this service in 2006, um, I did look at a number of mutual funds. I wrote an article about some mutual funds that were supposed to be, you know, socially responsible, 
mutual funds or whatever they were called at the time. ESG wasn't being used at the time, uh, that term. Uh, but then you look at them and not a single, well, maybe, no, I say not a single. There were probably a couple that were legit. But most of them were like, oh, we have a solar company and Exxon and BP and, you know, a bunch of, uh, I don't know, like um, big ag companies, industrial agriculture, like just poisoning the planet <laughs> with all these things. And I'm like, oh, but we put a solar company here. So we're technically an ethically invest, you know, an ethical mutual fund or whatever. And people, you know, you can't you can't trust Wall Street. You sure. can't trust these finance guys. I mean, they're always like they're always hustling something. Um, and the and ESG is just the latest thing. But the great thing about ESG for them is they can play both sides of it. They say, oh, we have an ESG fund for you if you're a tree hugger and you want to invest. Great. Oh well, you know, and they they the same people in the same office saying ESG is bullshit and you know we need to stop the wokeness and all this stuff. And it's yeah. Well, I think that there's a separate. I feel like lumping the environmental stuff with the social with the social stuff together is a little bit weird. Um, we've all heard the term uh, go. Get get woke, go broke, or go woke, get broke. Right. Um, is there a point where the social aspect of ESG can become a detriment? Oh, sure. I mean, absolutely. I think there are <clears throat> both advantages and um, and disadvantages. I think the advantages. One thing about the social thing, and I I was thinking about equity and hiring practices. Um, we saw this a lot in the cannabis space, where when cannabis, the cannabis industry first hit. Um, and I would meet with a lot of the the CEOs of these companies and their management teams. Rarely did you see women or people of color. Now, for me, I'm the first thing I'm saying is, it's not just white dudes that buy weed. Okay, so if you're selling weed, you should probably have also women and people of color on your board because it it's a smart strategic thing to do. You know, I'm not saying you should do it because you feel guilty that there's a just white. Sure, but is it? I mean, yeah, is it a smart thing to do if you're just purely doing it to meet a quota? Like if no. you're like if you have like two candidates that are lined up and you're like, I'm going to choose this one because it meets this this social quota, but you're you're passing up like you know experience or whatever. Yeah, that's and, never a good idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would never. Yeah. I never support such a thing. And I know so some companies, you know, maybe do that. I I don't know any specific examples i'm sure there are yeah um but yeah if you're if if you're selling something unless it's to a specific group of people i don't know why you would not include every possible like people in your in your company that represent your customers yeah well i think common sense yeah well i mean i think that like i i don't think that you should exclude anybody in the in the process of of, no. of interviewing and hiring no but but i would say but i would say honestly though if i it, it, if i was running a cannabis company like if i was selling weed um i would definitely have you know some people of color and women on, on that board sure and, and not just like one or two like you figure out like more than 50 percent of all sales cannabis sales are made by women so why would I have ninety? Why would I have a ninety percent? You said fifty percent, really? Yeah, that actually surprised me. I figured it'd be mostly mostly men. It's mostly women. Okay, wow. Not by a wide margin, but okay. uh, but uh, enough of a, of a difference that, that it's it's worth noting. Yeah, I mean, I feel like at this point, every you know, everyone smokes weed. I don't think there's yeah. any real demographic barriers to uh, to who's smoking weed. And I who think is you're right on that. <laughs> okay, I want to transition the conversation to some specific opportunities that you're looking at right now that may be in the realm of ESG or not. Uh, the first one I, I would think that it certainly is. Um, it's kind of this uh, solar income opportunity that you've been talking about. I don't know all the details, but uh, as far as I understand it, this is a way for people to invest in private solar companies, so not publicly held entities, uh, and get a share of those profits on a regular basis. 
Um, could you maybe tell us like how many companies are doing this and explain sure. what that process is? So it's it's not so much uh, different companies, but different projects. So essentially, what this company does is it will go out and finance and build a solar project. Um, and what they do is they'll get uh, what's called a power purchase agreement with the local utility. And power purchase agreement, all that is, it's basically the utility saying, okay, we're going to pay you X amount of dollars you know, for your energy over the course of 15 to 20 years. Usually it's 20 years because um, they're, they're long. These contracts are long term. Um, so you lock in at a certain rate. Well, some of these projects are not they're not easy to fund all the time or they can be funded. But, it, 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 you know, if you want if you need the if you need the capital to fund these projects, there are a number of ways to do that. What this company does is it use a crowdfunding model uh, and what and they'll get the power purchase agreement in place. They'll get everything in place to start building the project. And in many cases, they will start building it because they have larger investors that have already ponied up like maybe a couple million to get it started. Uh, and then they go out to regular retail investors and they say, hey, you know, would you like to be a part of this? If you invest $500, you know, you'll get earn an internal rate of return, depending on the project, anywhere from 7% to 15%. And then what happens is you, it's, it's just income. You get that for the next 15 to 20 years. Just on an annual basis? Yeah. So what yeah. will happen is you can turn it over. Um, you know, the money comes in and you can just collect your check. I think sure. they let you do it maybe like every quarter or something. Okay. Um, or you can just let it ride. Obviously, like I let it ride. Can you, re you, can you reinvest and then obviously every, it compounds? Yeah. Uh, that's, okay. yeah. And that's really yeah. the point. That's what you want to do is yeah. kind of set it and forget it. The, the nice thing about it is you're not, it's not going to make you a millionaire, but if you put a chunk of money in, you know, like today, that's just going to keep making you money for the next 15, 20 years. And, and the returns are higher than inflation. So you, unless inflation gets, except for, okay, so one project is 7%. So I think inflation was at 8% at one point. Yeah. But for the most part, you're always going to beat inflation yeah. with, with these projects. Yeah, well, I would deals. say, I mean, even regardless of inflation, I, I think most investors would take a 7% to 15% return yeah. on an annual basis. It's and kind of like a no-brainer. Right. And it's not, it's, it's not affected by stock market swings. You're locked into that rate. That's it. It's yeah. not going to go down. It's not like you made 7% and you have to worry about going down to 5%. It's locked in. Yeah. Are there any, what are like, what are the downsides or, or the risks to that kind of? Uh... I mean, I think the only downside would be is if, if, if you're impatient, yeah, you know, and you just want, you, you want to trade. It's the, the fact that your, your money is illiquid. Right. Yeah. Right. This is an investment. This is not a trade. The, o I, the only other thing you have to consider, and I, I'm not personally c concerned about it, but this, but this company has projects all over the world. So there's some parts of the world that it is possible that maybe one day the president of some country wakes up and says, you know what, I'm going to nationalize everything. And then sure. that's it. The guys that run this company are pretty smart. You know, they have operations in Africa and Brazil. So that I know they have like the risk factors on those places. Um, but there's so much money invested in those things. I, I think that risk is pretty minimal. Okay. And I have to ask, are there any requirements that you need to meet to be able to invest in this? Because I know that a lot of private investments, you need to be accredited. You need to right. make a certain amount of money a year. No, a... you don't have to be accredited. Um, you don't have to go through a broker. They have it set up on their on their platform. You just go in, fill out a form, wire the money. I think the, the minimum investment is like 100 bucks. Okay. So it's pretty cheap to get in. Um, and you can also add more as you go as well. So if, say, you, you lock in at this, on this project and it pays 8%, and you put in a thousand dollars. Maybe six months later, 
you get a bonus at work. You're like, I want to put some more money. So you, you can put it, you just put it back into that, that project as well. Okay. And if someone wanted to kind of get all the details on that, what would they do? They would join Green Chip Stocks or? Yeah, I have a report on it. It lays the whole thing out. The, 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 uh, the opportunity, it, it gives you um, my personal contact over there, the links to get you to the, the sign up page. Um, it's pretty, it's, it's very, very easy. Okay. It's actually, I, quite frankly, I think it's easier than actually buying a stock. Okay. Yeah. So you don't actually need a brokerage account to do it. You can no. just, okay. No. Well, that's pretty compelling. I, I might uh, read that report. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to talk about this uh, battery belt that you kind of have been talking about for uh, more recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically, you know, the premise as I understand it is that there is a uh, emerging region in North America where we are, you know, the West is basically trying to reduce their reliance on China right. uh, because they have a huge like monopoly on lithium batteries. Could you elaborate on that whole situation? Yeah. So um, this is coming from a f- couple of places. <clears throat> the, one, the main area is, is just the, the U.S. government has realized that we do know that there is a transition happening from internal combustion to vehicle electrification. Like that is happening. By 2030, more than 50 percent of all new car sales in this country will be electric. Um, so... In order to facilitate that, you need a lot of materials that we don't have here and we have not typically mined here. Um, So many of these minerals come from places where child slave labor is very common, um, and that's not a good look. Uh, But moreover, I think, well, I'll, I'll be brutally honest here. I don't think those in the government really care. I think what they care about is the national security issue. Yeah. And if we we already, even though we produce a lot of oil here, Oil is a global commodity. So OPEC exists because we drive internal combustion vehicles. OPEC has the ability to create very serious geopolitical situations that can affect the global economy, not just the U.S. economy. So we're kind of vulnerable. Even though we produce a lot of oil, we're still vulnerable to oil markets. The fuel, you know, for electric vehicles is the battery. Um, So we need to figure out how we can produce the batteries domestically so we're not relying up on other countries that can decide, you know, hey, we're going to stop production or we're going to slow production and fuck everybody over. Um, in order to do that, we have to build up this infrastructure of mining and also recycling, battery recycling, which actually is the battery recycling is a, is a very big, um, I think that's going to be uh, a really big issue. Um, there are a number of companies that are recycling battery materials right now are building these billion-dollar plants yeah. along the battery belt, too. Because I, I think one of the most recent um, uh, reports I read about the, the recycling of these batteries, cobalt is, is a key component in the, in the battery packs. And cobalt mostly comes from Congo, again, child slave labor. Um, you, can, you can get something like close to 60% recovery of cobalt through these recycling facilities on old batteries. So let's just say you could immediately immediately cover, uh, you know, reduce your reliance on imported cobalt by 60%. Can we produce the other 40% in the U.S. and Canada? And the answer to that is, is, is very likely yes. Um, so it's not going to be 100% mining. It's probably going to be a mix of mining and recycling. And we will still rely on some on some imports. Uh, but the, the but with China having a kind of stranglehold. On, on yeah, not just the minerals themselves, but also the processing. We don't have enough processing here. So we're building that along this, what you call the battery belt, which is the recycling, the processing. Um, and also the, these plants are, building a lo- are being built alongside a lot of uh, 
auto manufacturing plants. So <clears throat> you're essentially getting rid of like long distribution routes. Uh, there's one in, in Georgia that Hyundai's, Hyundai's building. Um, there's a plant that makes the electric cars and there's also a plant that makes the batteries. Um, and that's what you're going to see. And that, that battery belt, it's not just batteries, it's battery materials, it's recycling, it's the actual auto manufacturing facilities that are all along the, this, what we're calling the battery belt. Okay. And some, some of the, like, the investment opportunities that you're seeing there right now is mainly recycling. Are there any miners in that area or... There's definitely some miners that I like. Um, those are all in Canada right now. I actually know one of them does have an, uh, a property in Idaho. Yeah, well, I know there's a lot of Canadian miners that are mining in the in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. Some of them are there now. <clears throat> there's there's a potential for some of these these mining companies to do quite well, but I'm very skeptical, like early stage mining, because I've been around a lot of these mining guys, and they'll just tell you any, oh yeah, we got everything we need, and then you know six months later, ah, oh, you know, we ran out of money, so it's. Uh, I like to see if it's a if it's a mining play. I want to see like I, I want to see proven reserves. I want to see operations. I want to see a big chunk of cash, sure. and cash reserves, um, and which you're going to see, especially with the government putting billions of dollars into this now, um, and those mining companies are going to get some of that. Uh, I think mining those companies are longer term in terms of you know when you're going to see a payout. Sure. Whereas I think the recycling companies they can do it right now. I think yeah they're actively building out their uh, the production now, um, and I, pro- I I suspect probably in about two to three years, these recycling companies are going <clears> to <throat> be covering more than half of all the domestically produced battery materials. Gotcha. Well, I mean, it's definitely a compelling situation. I, I def- you mentioned OPEC earlier, and I kind of see it as this <clears throat> parallel to what we saw, saw during the fracking boom, mm-hmm. which was kind of like America's play at reducing at least a, a good chunk of our reliance on OPEC. And now it's like we're trying to do the same thing, but with uh, electrification and lithium and cobalt and all that. So, well, it, and, you know, we know how much money those, you know, was made during that fracking boom. Right. Um, and I know that you're not you might not be pro fracking because you're you're on the ESG side. But it's you know, if this seems like a very, very similar situation where we're probably going to see, a you know, a huge uh kind of rush of, of cash and, and uh, investment into into the that whole battery belt that you're talking about. Oh, yeah. Well, so Redwood Materials is one of the bigger recyclers. And um, <clears throat> I believe they just got like a $2 billion loan from the government to expand their facility. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I do. Th- I, yeah. So I do believe that uh, the, the sh- they call the, the low hanging fruit in this area w- will be the recycling. Okay. All right. Um, want to talk about some of your favorite uh, electric vehicle stocks, if you have any right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you were one of the first analysts talking about Tesla. You, you were telling people to buy it, uh, you know, before its IPO, like when it, right. like when it was IPOing. I read an article from you way back in the day, and you were saying, buy this company. And I mean, that's, you know, obviously, you're ahead of the game on that stuff. You've been interested in electric vehicles for a while. But, uh, you know, obviously, we've seen a lot of these companies already, you know, explode in share value, and we've seen some of them dump in share value more mm-hmm. recently. I know that uh, you were recently writing about uh, Canoe getting crushed after its financing round. Has the, the question to you is, has the ship already sailed on electric vehicle companies at this point, or are there any opportunities in that, in that space? So I think in terms of passenger vehicles, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for anyone to come in with a new electric vehicle company. Yep. <clears throat> when Tesla came in, it was the only game in town. There was no competition. Now every major automaker in the world is making electric cars. Sure. I mean, I, I don't care 
if you have great technology or great plan or a great design, you're you're still not going to have as much money as as Ford or GM. Um, and you need so much money to start a, like, a, any car company. Yeah. Um, interestingly, every new car company that's come out, uh, I think in the, like the last five years, um, has been electric only. Not a single new car company has come out that makes internal combustion vehicles, um, which is kind of telling. Um, yeah, that would seem like a silly thing for a company to do at this point. But, you know, like I'm going to start a typewriter company. You know, <laughs> it's like it's. It, is there a point though, maybe where we start to see some? The, the, where the resource constraints in lithium and cobalt mm-hmm. do reach a point where it's so constrained that maybe there could be kind of this comeback moment for uh, for combustion engines? I don't think there'll be a comeback moment. Um, the, the resource constraints are real, and they're going to continue for a long time. Um, but in terms of... I don't see a situation where there's going to going to be a situation where there's not going to be enough resources to build electric cars so people are going to say well i guess i'll just get an internal combustion the only the only way you'll see that happen is if the prices like go up uh increasingly because of, of resource constraints which is a possibility gotcha. and then it's because electric vehicles are already more expensive up front um if they become more expensive then i could see people say well i was going to get an electric car but i'm going to go back to a conventional internal combustion because I just can't afford those. Um, Not to keep harping on the recycling thing, but that is another advantage of the recycling of these batteries. When you use oil uh, to, you know, to make gasoline or diesel to run your car, like once you, once that's combusted, it's gone. Like you can't recycle it. It's, it's gone. It's, it's vapor. The fuel again, which is the battery, let's say just 50% of that can be recycled. Imagine if you could recycle 50% of every drop of gas you've ever put in your car. Sure. It's a big deal. Um, so I, th- I do believe that because we have the ability to recycle these batteries now, um, that will alleviate some of the, uh, the resource constraint problems. But I think that resource constraints are going to c- continue probably until the end of the decade. Are, is there a specific company that you're, that you're watching or companies in the recycling space? Um, yeah, there's, there's a number of them. Um, actually my colleague, Keith, Keith Cole, um, has written about one of them that I, I'm a big fan of. Um, I don't know if you can put a link to that report, but, um, uh, that, that's one I really like. Redwood Materials is a great company. It's private at the moment. Um, there are rumors that it could go public, uh, depending upon the deal structure, that could be a really great opportunity. Gotcha. Um, they have, at least in the U S are the, um, the leaders in terms of battery recycling. And there's some in Europe too um, that are doing recycling batteries on a smaller scale, but will expand. So like Norsk Hydro is one of those companies that uh, they have a facility, I think it's a, it's in Norway. Um, it's quite small at the moment. I think they have enough capacity to build 25,000 new battery packs in a year, um, which is nothing. Um, but they're, they are actively expanding, so it'll be in the millions probably in the next three to five years. Um, Europe and I think Europe and, and North America in particular are going to be the hubs for recycling because most of Europe and North America, well, if, if you don't ca- count Canada and parts of um, Mexico, it's, it's not like we have these you know massive swaths of land where we can just dig out a bunch of cobalt. Sure. Okay. Well, <clears throat> Jeff? 
It's been good having you on the show. That was quick. Yeah. Is it quick? <laughs> I feel like we got a good, like, maybe, like, 20, 25 minutes okay. in. Okay. I mean, is there anything else you want to plug or? Uh, just, you know, I, just to kind of hit on the ESG point again, I mean, everyone's entitled to their own opinions. If If you don't think that it makes sense to invest in a company that, uh, integrates ESG into their operations, that's fine. Um, but there's no reason to shit on people just because they don't want to treat the planet like a toilet. Fair enough. <laughs> hey, Jeff, it was good having you on, and uh, we'll follow up on some of this stuff next Thank time. Thank you, you very come. much. All right, thanks. Uh, like, comment, subscribe, all that stuff. Join the Discord. We'll see you.